2: One of the things that I want to do today is just cover quickly a couple of very nice, not uncritical reviews, some nice, some not so nice on Apple Podcasts. I won't spend too much time on it because I know that it really is of any interest to me, (laughs) probably not even to you. Uh, I want to talk more seriously about some incoming economic news and opinion, really, that is a quite a big change from what we were seeing towards the end of 2022. The official and other forecasts were really full of gloom and doom. And there's quite a few things now suggesting that maybe, just maybe, things aren't as bad as a lot of these prognostications are suggesting. And there's two particular aspects of that. There's one, a Chris Jars article in the FT. We've mentioned Chris many times before. He's a great economist. If anybody ever wants to follow somebody in the FT, that is most definitely worth following. And Goldman Sachs the very big global investment bank, have changed their forecast for Europe. So that, that, that's interesting. And um, I'll talk a little bit about that. Anything else you want to talk about, we'll just pick it up as we go along. The first thing I wanted to mention, because it's kind of funny, is a review of The Other Hand on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to everybody that is continuing to leave reviews. It's brilliant. We, we love it and it really, really helps us. So keep them coming. We won't be able to comment or indeed thank everybody personally for for their reviews. There are now too many, but this particular one caught my eye. And it was posted on the 6th, so only three or four days ago. We are referred to, Jim, as the Statler and Waldorf of economics. Do Do you remember the Muppets? I certainly do. Statler and of were these two old geezers. It's not a compliment. Uh, well, it, 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 that in itself isn't, but the rest of it is, uh, is, is pretty nice. It says, Jim Power and Chris Jones present economics in terms of probability rather than certainty. So this is somebody, a man or a woman, who certainly gets it. And they base their opinions on the actual data which they both take time to review. Again, something we pride ourselves on. I never thought I'd be interested in the Irish economy. And this is something else about the review that uh, caught my eye, because we've seen this before, haven't we, Jim? That a lot of people from around the world, particularly in the UK, are saying that obviously they're interested in their own economies. But we talk a lot about Ireland for obvious reasons. Non-Irish people are finding it interesting, which is which is great to see, because we do think that Ireland has lots of interest. It's a bellwether for the world economy, for one, and lots of other non-economic, political-type reasons as well, because of the, but not least, the connections with the UK. And this listener says that, I never thought I'd be interested in the Irish economy, but compared to where the UK is now, there are a lot of lessons to be learnt. And I think that's a two-way street. I think the UK certainly could learn a lot of lessons from the way the Irish economy is being run. And I think that there are lots of warnings for Ireland from the way the UK is being run at the moment. And he concludes, he or she concludes this review with, check out the episode of, and he quotes here, Why Nothing Works Anymore. He says it's the best podcast of 2022 when CJ basically goes on a massive rant on what in the UK we can see with our own eyes. Keep up the good work. So we may be the stapler and Waldorf of economics, Jim, but this particular commentator likes what we do, which is great to see. And thanks to them and to everybody else that is saying anything, really, about the podcast on Apple Reviews or, indeed, on Spotify. I want to move on and talk about the doom and gloom that really has gripped forecasters. We've talked about it a lot. There have been a couple of things. I've alerted you to the Chris Giles article, and maybe I'll let you talk about that and tell us what you think of it. But uh, today, Goldman Sachs have revised their forecasts for the Eurozone for 2023. And they were saying previously that the EU would have a mild recession in 2023, and they have revised their forecasts to say no recession. That's because the end-2022 data have come in better than expected, and we've both commented on that before. They are acknowledging the lower natural gas price story, which is very important, and I'll come back to that later on. And the Chinese reopening is obviously important for lots of European export industries, not least Germany. So they've revised their forecasts to GDP being up in 2023 compared to 2022. Not by much, about 0.6%, whereas they were forecasting a small fall in GDP. And importantly, growth is going to accelerate throughout the year. And that's a point that Chris Charles alludes to as well. They also think inflation will come down faster than they previously expected... Which you might think is a bit weird considering they've upped their growth forecasts. But nevertheless, their ECB forecasts are pretty bearish still, in that they think that even though their inflation forecasts have come down a bit, the ECB will hike by a total of another 125 basis points. What do you think about that interest rate forecast, Jim, in particular, and also the fact that they're getting more optimistic about the economy?
1: Okay, Chris, between the end of July of last year and the 14th or the 15th of December, actually, the European Central Bank increased one of its key refinancing rates from zero to two and a half percent. And I was today preparing a presentation I'm doing over the coming days, looking at some forecasts, and I was predicting an ECB base rate of three and a half percent within the next four or five months. So in other words, another one percent from there. I believe that would be sufficient. uh, But of obviously, the European Central Bank is a little bit more bearish than that at the moment. But I'd be in broad agreement with what Goldman Sachs is saying about the interest rate prognosis. In terms of the Chris Giles piece in the Financial Times, I mean, we, we discussed in our first podcast of the year, the possibility that actually growth might turn out a little bit better than expected. And You know, Chris, I'm not saying he picked it up from us, but uh, the piece he wrote in the last couple of days was interesting. He was talking about the very negative prognostications from various forecasters towards the end of last year and indeed in the early days of this year. His conclusion is that it actually won't be as bad as most economists are currently Forecasting the the reason for that was he went through the technicalities of the OECD's most recent forecast of for the economy, which I think was late October, early November, and he was he went through the quarterly projections there, suggesting actually that it's not going to be too bad despite the headline numbers. Uh, But the other point he made, which I think is a really relevant one, I I suppose it's us trying to keep on top of data, which, as you said earlier, we try and pride ourselves on doing. But he basically says two things. One is that some of the assumptions and forecasts on which the OECD's forecast was prepared are now out of date. He cites specifically natural gas prices. The OECD had projected €150 per megawatt hour this year, and next year. And the it's looking at the moment that gas prices will be less than half that level. So the impact of that on real incomes, on economic growth, on public finances and inflation, I think is quite significant, particularly for Europe, because Europe is a big energy importer. And the second reason why Chris Giles is more optimistic is that the ending of the zero COVID policy in China. Um, He believes it will lead to a strong rebound in Chinese economic activity. And he's using the example of the Indian economy. I think it was the first quarter of 21 when the Indian economy had a serious surge. Once the economy reopened, there was a very strong rebound in economic activity. So Chris Giles, as I say, and as you've said, is definitely more upbeat than a lot of the negative prognostications out there. And I I saw somebody, indeed an economist, comment in social media in the last couple of days that when the economics profession is forecasting something in a fairly united way, it means it's definitely not going to happen. So there there is a sense of that around here at the moment. But um, I'm definitely um, a little bit more in the optimistic camp than the pessimistic camp at this juncture. Uh, the big caveat, of course, is the ongoing Ukraine war and what might happen there. But based on what we know at the moment, um, you know, 2023 could be, it'll be a challenging year. There's no doubt about that with rising interest rates, with cost of living pressures and so on. But it might not just be as bad as some are forecasting. The final thing I would say, Chris, is that the World Bank came out with its latest Economic forecast today, and that's a pretty downbeat one. So it it does fly in the face of what Chris was saying. But I suspect that World Bank forecast is also based on data and assumptions that are now a little bit dated.
2: That's right. And one of the other things that we talk about a lot, um, other than natural gas prices, is the oil price. And I don't think when a lot of these official forecasts were being put together, back in the autumn, that really fueled the end pessimism that we've seen, the, the real uniform doom and gloom that these newer forecasts perhaps are an antidote to, is the, is the fact that oil prices are now lower than they were a year ago, really. And if you're wondering why oil prices have fallen, it's really very interesting. Bloomberg have produced some very interesting data today, only today, on what actually happened last year. And Russian oil production, um, particularly in the first half of the year, just after the invasion, just after the war started, Russian oil production was down by 122 million barrels. And that's, I think, what led an awful lot of people to think that the spike in oil prices that we saw would be sustained. But what we didn't expect, what actually has happened, is that to counter that 122 million barrel loss of oil from the global oil market the U.S. and its allies released 314 million barrels of oil from their strategic petroleum reserves. Now, most of that actually was, of course, from the States, 222 million of of that 314 million. So for every barrel of Russian oil that was lost from the world market, the U.S. and its allies released 2.6 barrels into the global market. So surprise, surprise that the oil price fell. And, of course, the subtext to this is not just they're combating Russia and Russia's ability to fund itself, but they're also combating OPEC. Because one of the things that happened last year that I think under normal circumstances would have attracted much more attention was that OPEC really, really snubbed Joe Biden and the US with its attempts to get oil prices to stay at around $100 a barrel. So far, they failed. So one of the the questions that arises, and it is only a question I, I don't have the answer, is... I imagine that the um, US and its allies can't release another 300-plus million barrels of oil this year. So what will happen to the oil price? Maybe one of the things that uh, could lead to uh, a renewed pessimism about inflation and growth is another spike in oil prices if OPEC and Russia gets its way. But so far, so good. And the oil prices remained in the $70 to $80 range in the early part of the year. So any fears that the um, Americans and their allies can't combat um, both Russia and OPEC so far, the US is, is winning. So I think that, through the course of the year, is going to be worth keeping an eye on the oil price as much as the gas price. But on the gas price, Jim, today, it's fallen again, another 6 7% the last time I looked. So the good news is continuing there. One of the, the other things that I wanted to talk about today, Jim, just very briefly... Um, is the night sky. You might remember that Elon Musk founded a company, I think it was called SpaceX a few years ago, with the intention of doing several things, not least landing on Mars. This company has built 3,300 satellites in low Earth orbit. And they're being used for for several things, actually, probably some things that we, we, we don't know a lot about and spy agencies do. It's being used by the Ukrainian armed forces. Musk has given permission for them to use it for their uh, battlefield communications so that the Russians can't listen in and uh, geolocate them and all those other things that you do if you're you're communicating by radio or mobile phone. And uh, Musk is trying to get the Pentagon to pay for it, but I'm I'm not sure whether the Pentagon is is up to it at the moment. But one of the extraordinary things that I saw last night was I happened to be looking at the night sky, and I'm uh, currently geolocated very near the Mediterranean Sea, Um, you'll be pleased to know I'm still here. I I happened to look up at the night sky and I saw Starlink, I think it's called, which is this chained link of satellites. They all travel together. And I stopped counting at about 60 of them. It was the most extraordinary night sky sight that I have ever seen. And I've seen the Northern Lights, I've seen satellites in singular, but I've never seen 60, all very close, all travelling, pretty much in a straight line. If, you can, if you, you can look it up on the web and when, where and when in the world you can see these sat- satellites. Extraordinary. And one of the many things they're doing, um, purportedly, is bringing broadband to out-of-reach places. So I know that there's, there's some people in rural Ireland and in rural UK who complain bitterly about their broadband reception. Apparently you can sign up to this satellite Starlink thing and get decent broadband via this offering. And one of the things I've seen uh, recently as well is some analysts are saying that if you if you could buy shares in this company, I'm not sure that they are listed or not, or whether they're they're too too new for that. But it is going to be a big big deal. So do take a look out for that. Uh, I think it's time to move on from from, from looking at the night sky. Well, I, was, um, I, was, I know you wanted. I, you, I was. I was going
1: to say, Chris, that um, last night there was an attempt to launch a satellite off the southwest coast of Ireland and indeed shipping vessels and fishermen and so on were asked to avoid a certain part of the sea off the coast of Ireland last night because of this satellite launch into space which actually didn't work as it turned out but anyway um, I'm glad some That was launched
2: from that was launched from the UK It was wasn't launched from the like UK it but it went
1: down past the southwest coast of Ireland so that was the part of the um See that people were asked to avoid, just in case there was debris flowing from those rockets. Uh, but I'm glad, Chris, you were looking up at the um, the sky last night. Um, I, which of course was
2: crystal, crystal clear, unlike your skies. Yeah,
1: actually, it was very, very unclear last night. Hold
0: up.
1: I think things I want to touch on. Um, I mean, we've spoken about the global economic outlook and we've you, you went through the Goldman Sachs view on inflation. And uh, it's, it's interesting over the last couple of weeks, the narrative on inflation is certainly changing in terms of the official data. Um, the eurozone inflation rate is now down at 9.2%, still ridiculously high, but moving in the right direction. The US rate at 7.1%. Uh, but the brazilian rate came out today at 5.8% which is the lowest since 2021 norwegian rate at 5.9% which is 7 month low so we're seeing headline inflationary pressures um easing quite considerably around the place at the moment and i i i grant you that a lot of this is due to energy costs and central bankers i think are more concerned now about these uh, the second round effects of inflation on you know, wage demands, on service prices, and so on. Uh, but at least after 12 months of incessantly bad news on the inflation front, it is good to see a move in the right direction. Um, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, was speaking at a conference in Sweden today, and um, he went on a very strong defence of the independence of the Federal Reserve. And um, He said that basically the Federal Reserve would maintain its narrow focus on keeping consumer prices stable, fostering a healthy labour market and ensuring the safety of the banking system. And I I guess in that regard, you know, he is doing okay. The unemployment rate is at three and a half percent of the labour force, which is virtually full employment. Um, Granted, headline inflation at 7.1 percent is way above what the Fed would desire, but Um, That too, as I say, is moving in the right direction. And as far as we can judge, uh, the US banking system seems reasonably stable at this point in time, certainly nothing like where it was back in 2007, 2008. Uh, But he he then went on to say that it would be wrong for the Federal Reserve. And indeed, I guess he was referring to any central bank, it would be wrong to use interest rates to foster a green economy or climate-based goals. So this is the central bank governor or the head of the Federal Reserve, the chairman, basically saying that, you know, it's up to the political system to deliver on the climate-based goals. And it's not the role of a central bank to basically destroy economic activity using interest rates in order to bring emissions down. Um, I just thought it was a an interesting perspective from a central banker who actually has been under quite a bit of pressure over the last an couple unusual, of years. An
2: unusual perspective, actually, to be talking in that way. In, in in a slightly more familiar refrain, there's actually been a research paper published by the ECB today, I don't know whether you've seen it, in which they were comparing inflation pressures in the Eurozone to the United States. And it was an interesting perspective, because they say that most of the inflation in Europe is actually inf- energy-based and it hasn't spread into non-energy, at least in the way that it has in the United States. It spread a bit in Europe, but it was comparing and contrasting the experience of the euro area with the States. And just essentially making the point that because consumer demand in the States is so much stronger than in Europe, that's why inflation has spread in the United States in a way that it hasn't in Europe. But if you were just taking that piece of research on its own, you take some comfort that maybe the ECB is comfortable with the idea that um, provided energy prices either stay where they are or indeed fall further and certainly don't rise anymore, um, that uh, the interest rate outlook may not be quite as severe as, as some people fear. Um, so, so it was an interesting piece of research. Um, Jim, I know that one of the things that you wanted to talk about as well was crypto, because we've got some news from another crypto exchange about job losses. Is that right?
1: Yeah, the... Crypto exchange called Coinbase um, announced it's letting twenty five percent of its staff go to weather the downturn in that market. Um, it, it's it's been quite incredible to see what has happened to crypto market over the last twelve months. Um, as 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 you know, and as as some of our listeners hopefully will remember, we were deeply skeptical about crypto from the word go and got a lot of negative blowback as a result of that because. There has been a sort of an evangelical following behind Bitcoin. But um, it's it's just an ongoing story of more and more problems for the sector. So I just thought that that headline um, certainly captured my imagination today. Um, and and per- Yeah, it's another crypto exchange because yeah.
2: FTX was a crypto. It was yes. the, the big story of, at the end of last year. Um, Nassim Taleb. The, the, the writer of the book Black Swan, which I know you've read and I know many of our readers would have seen and people talk about black swans all the time these days, as a result of him coining that phrase, he talked about crypto the other day in a really interesting way, almost philosophical actually, in which he, he compared it to gold, crypto and gold as, as people often do. Indeed, crypto has often been called um, digital gold. And he was saying that the two things um, are different in one key respect. And this is that when people, as they do from time to time, lose interest in gold as an investment or for whatever reason, they just lose interest, the gold is still there. You can lose interest in it. It may not be traded as much as it were. The price may go down. People may not use as much of it as they did in the past. It just isn't fashionable for a while. But the physical gold is still there. People are losing interest in crypto right now for very obvious reasons. We just talked about one of them there. But... Is it still there when people lose interest in the way that gold is physically still there? Is there any there, there, asks Taleb. And he thinks there isn't. And he thinks that what will happen is that people will lose interest. And that should anybody ever go back to look at crypto again, it won't be there anymore. It will have disappeared up its own exhaust pipe. Another negative take on crypto, which I found very interesting. I've no idea whether it's right or not. But it was, I say, almost philosophical in asking about the substance crypto.
1: You know, I I mentioned the word evangelical in relation to crypto. And another area where the same term can be applied is the modern monetary theory. That's the MMT. Um, We get a lot of feedback on our Substack account uh, to the various podcasts and the various pieces we write. Um, I put up a piece yesterday that I had written for the Irish examiner in relation to the tech woes and their possible implications for Ireland. And um, I had a go at modern monetary theory and the concept of the money tree, but one um, reader got back and basically said, um, I didn't understand money and that my view on MMT was totally wrong. I, I think that MMT had an evangelical following um, I think that it has been totally and utterly discredited over the last 12 or 18 months. And MMT basically uh, suggests that um, you know controlling money supply is not important, that governments can create as much money as they want to create to address whatever they want to do. Um, I, I have to say it's a theory that never sat comfortably with me and I reckon for a long time it was probably because i was too old and too conservative to understand it but um the the, the more we go on the more i con- convinced i become at least that mmt has passed its sell by date and uh like crypto i think it's something that could very easily be confined to the dustbin of history w- what do you think
2: i agree and as you know jim i've never been an mmter i do think that it was the magic money tree as as you say and i think it's a bit rich for you to be accused of not understanding money i know that you're a very good monetary economist you understand both the theory and practice of money and i do think that the experience that we've had globally in most advanced economies over the last few years has in a very real sense been an experiment in the application of modern monetary theory and it's failed it, the results are there for all to see now. We've allowed inflation to take off in a way that nobody wanted. Nobody, the MMT included, foresaw. And we're dealing with the fallout. And I would strongly urge anybody never to do it again. Um, so that would be, be my response. Jim, in the time that we've got left to us, I don't know whether you've seen a story about planning permission in South Dublin, in, in Monkstown. Um, and it caught my eye because it reminded me very much of... Some of the things that I've been writing about Britain on, on our Substack site, I've put three pieces up recently, um, and there's a fourth one to come. And uh, one of the things that's happening in Britain is that there is something called an anti-growth coalition. It's not a formal thing. It's not people bandying together and forming a new political party or campaigning for anti-growth but the things that they actually do and say amount to being anti-growth and one of the things that economists say is that if you don't want to grow don't build anything if you don't want to grow don't build houses don't build factories don't build offices don't build solar farms don't build wind farms and one part of the anti-growth coalition are the people who use the planning system to stop anything from being built they say we are pro-growth and then they essentially practice nimbyism. Not in, we want growth, but not here. So as a result, in the UK, the planning system is not fit for purpose, and nothing is getting built. And I, th- I see parallels of that in Ireland. One of the th- what, there's a, there's a, quite a well known conservative MP, uh, Theresa Villiers. I think she was the Northern Ireland Secretary for a while, whose whose own website um, proudly boasts and lists in a very boastful way, the number of planning applications in her constituency that she's managed to get rejected. And that these offices, these houses, these developments have all been turned down by the planning authorities after I and many others objected to them. And there's been a new one. And I know there are several of these in Ireland, and we've talked about it before. But I think it's important because there were 70 objections to a 488 unit built to rent scheme on Monkstown Road in South Dublin. You probably know it well. And it's um, a US firm that's, uh, or a subsidiary of a US firm that's proposing to do this. All of the objections are um, in the usual fashion they're about the scale, the height, the layout, and car parking. And there are two councillors um, amongst these 70 objectors who launched a joint objection and uh, you'll know of one of them. You've probably heard of Richard Boyd Barrett. I certainly have. And in their objection, they object to the height, the density, the scale and visual impact. And they say it's out, all out of character with preserving the Victorian ambience of Monkstown. And this is where the, these sorts of objections... I have no idea about the merits or otherwise of these particular objections. This is just what I've read in the Irish Times. And they all, They all say the same sorts of things. And to me, this amounts to saying... Um, not in my backyard, so it's pure nimbyism. So they will go on to say that they're pro-growth, just like of Villiers and others in the UK, but please don't grow anywhere near me. And the other thing, this point about preserving Victoria ambience caught my eye because it strikes me that an awful lot of people seem to want to live in an open-air museum. And um, interestingly, the Georgian Society of Dublin is, is also one of the many objectors and are saying that they're very concerned about the loss of, of a 19th century garden. Jim, would you care about the loss of a 19th century garden in the interest of building new houses? Uh, no, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't, Chris, because um, I
1: know every planning application has to be judged on its own merits, and one can't apply a blanket comment on, on all of it. But, um, I mean, at the end of the day, Richard Boyd barratt and people before profit um, are on media every day of the week, Lamenting the fact that the government is failing to deliver housing, that we have a huge housing crisis, etc., 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 and Sinn Féin likewise. And yet, these are the ones that are objecting to virtually every development that's proposed to go ahead at this stage. I mean, you you can agree or disagree with the nature of some of these developments in the sense that um, you'd probably prefer to see buy to sell rather than, or sorry, build to sell rather than build to rent. Uh, But the the model for build to sell isn't working very well at the moment, whereas the model for build to rent seems to be the only financial model in the current environment that is working. So um, the only way we will solve this housing crisis is to... Um, build more and more property there is no doubt about if we continue to grow our population which we are doing and if we want to continue to grow our economy and uh, this brings me back to something we discussed in our last last podcast about the moral consequences of economic growth if you do not get economic growth and development you will not be able to address the social issues in a country full stop and i think the provision of adequate housing is a key part of that. And indeed, there's data from Eurostat over the last uh, 24 hours showing that rent increases in Ireland have far, far surpassed those elsewhere. Um, and what has happened, rent, rent prices much, much worse than what's happened on the house price front. So one of the big problems in the Irish housing market, there's lots of them, but one of the big ones is a total lack of adequate supply of rental property. And um, th- that's why these
2: objections are objectionable in my view, I have to say. Objectionable objections, Jim. I think that's probably a very, a very good point to, to wrap this podcast. I'll conclude my remarks. I don't know whether you want to say anything else in conclusion, but I just wanted to let people know that it is now possible to listen to our pods ad-free. For a while now, we've been uh, available on the Acast platform only via Apple Podcasts and Spotify and your usual things. It, it ultimately comes back to Acast. But now if you go on to our Substack site, and here's the sting in the tail, if you, if you become a subscriber, and you can get a free trial, so you can get the first while for nothing, but if you become a you know, subscriber to our podcast and hand over a few shekels, you will be able to get ad-free podcasts via a link only on our Substack site. We've done that in response to reader and listener requests. So we hope that that uh, deals with that issue.
1: A a couple of concluding comments from me. Um, I I wanted to talk about uh, the political instability in Brazil and Peru at the moment. And I'm obviously not going to announce we don't time. But what's happening in South America, in Latin America at the moment, is really interesting. And Bolsonaro, who's now in hospital in Florida, um, really is using the Donald Trump playbook. Um, And finally... Uh, somebody sent me a link today of a, an interview with a Sinn Féin TD from my neck of the woods in Waterford, David Culnan, who was saying that um, in response to Sinn Féin's deteriorating performance in the opinion polls, um, that the party has absolutely no links to criminality. I will leave it there, Chris. Great to talk again. Thanks okay. very much, Jim. And um, speak again next time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?